All right, so good morning, familia. Um, I want to welcome all to Witten Bible Church, especially if you're visiting for the first time. I think that you chose a really good season to be part of our church, or at least to visit, because we are in the middle of this crazy celebration we call, we call Advent. And what we have been doing, and actually one of our traditions as a church every year, is to take the time to think and meditate, and four longings we all have, the longings of hope, love, joy, and peace which are the same things that Jesus came to fulfill, which is part of the reason why he came, to fulfill our desire and longing for hope, love, joy, and peace. Now, what we're doing differently this year is that we are singing ourselves through Advent. If you were here last week, I explained that what we're doing different this year is instead of just grabbing a text and talk about the concept or the theme, what we're doing is we're picking and choosing songs that talk about those things. And the songs we are choosing come from the book of Psalms, because the book of Psalms, at the end of the day, is all songs. Last week, we sang about hope. Today, we're singing about love. What is interesting, though, as I was preparing for this, though, I've, I found myself thinking that probably talking about love is a little bit more complicated than any of the other topics we're going to talk about. And part of the reason why I think that this is more complicated is because I feel, it, this is me, that we almost need to unlearn what love is from a secular perspective, a cultural perspective, so then we can relearn what love is according to the Bible. What makes this topic a little bit more difficult than the rest is that we have been infected or affected by the world's definition of love to the point that the biblical definition of love, which in my opinion, and it should be your opinion, uh, is the right definition of love. And part of the reason why... This is difficult. It's because you and I, we are part of a culture in which everyone is in love with love. Everyone is obsessed with love. And I think that you and I, you, um, you, you would agree with me because if all you have to do is look at the movies, listen to the songs, and look at what the culture says. That's so easy to prove. If you look at the most popular songs in the last year, regardless of what generation you belong to, you will probably notice that about 75% of those songs are all love songs. We are obsessed with the idea of love. We are in love with love. You know, just to appeal to a little bit of the young, younger generation, just pay attention to Taylor Swift. Man, that girl needs to read more. She, almost, she only talks about one topic. Look at some of the songs, Love Story, You Belong With Me, Lover, Lover Paris, and then I look through the list, man, and she, man, really, she's, she's got issues. <laughs> great artist, great artist. He needs to study a little more. We could also talk about Justin Bieber, with his struggling with his ex. He writes a song which it took him about two minutes. How about if you go and love yourself? Yeah, you won. What an argument. It's... When you see, all, all of our culture is obsessed with this. And for those of you that worship Hallmark movies. <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy Hallmark movies every now and then. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to criticize them. It's always the same story. <laughs> a really beautiful lady finding a really beautiful boy. Both of them with super white teeth. They like each other. They're friends. They, they, they don't like each other. And then they end up being together. Every movie is the same. You know, my, 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 one of my girls hates to watch movies with me because I'm always trying to foresee and predict 
what's going to happen in a movie. And when I nailed it, she's like, why do you say things? <laughs> you know, when I watch Hallmark movies, I don't even have to try. I already know the plot, the story, how the story is going to end. We are part of a culture that is really, 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 really obsessed with love. You know what's interesting, though? I actually think that I have a biblical reason why is it that we are obsessed with love. And listen, I actually think that it's probably not that bad. I want to make the argument that part of the reason why our culture is obsessed with love is because everyone in our culture, including us, we have been created in the image of a God that is love. Therefore, by nature, created, being created in his image, we are always going to want to be to give love and receive love. This part of our nature. That's not the problem. The problem is that we, that we love love. The problem is how we define love and how we settle for lesser loves instead of the real love. Are you guys with me? The problem is not that we love love. Love, 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 love. The problem is not even that we are in love with love. The problem is how we define that and how we settle for lesser loves that will never satisfy which then makes us want to look for more love in all the wrong places. So this is how we're going to talk about this topic. Same pattern that I used last week. We're going to talk about what's love, three questions, why love, and why Advent. What's love, why love, and why Advent. And to do that, we're going to spend some time thinking about Psalm 100. So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of reverence to him. Psalm 100. If you're still with me, whether you are here in the West or in the East, could you please say, I'm here? I'm here. By the way, for those of you that are sitting in the East, I get to hear you louder than what I hear the people in front of me right now. So let's say that again. If you're with me, could you please say, I'm here? I'm here. Thank you. Psalm 100. It says this. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. You may look at this song and this song and say, this song is not about love. And I want to make the argument that this song is all about love. Look at point number one. Let's try to define what love is. But before I define what love is, I have to walk you through the entire psalm, which is pretty short. Because it's only when we walk through this psalm that we get to understand why is it that God, get, God gets to define what love is. So the psalm starts by calling God's people to sing. In verses 1 and 2, he says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. And then he says in verse 2, worship the Lord. And look at how we worship the Lord with gladness. Before his presence, 
with joyful songs. And I love these two verses because it almost gives us a, a short uh, version of the theology of worship. Let's just start with a little phrase, shout for joy. The word shout there is significant and important because it is the expression that the Bible uses to talk about the attitude and the experience, the attitude and the experience of someone that is before, in ancient times, the coronation of a king. This will be what people express and how they express because their king is becoming a king. Now, we got to keep in mind that in ancient times, a king uh, was not just someone with a lot of power, but he was someone with a lot of power that was called to seek the good of his people, to care, protect, and to fight for his people. That's why in a coronation, people will be extremely happy. Shout for joy. And what the psalmist is saying, that when we worship the Lord, we worship the Lord with shouts of joy because we are praising the King of Kings. The ultimate king, the better king, the best king. Now, this is interesting. The word worship can also be translated as service. Meaning that when we are worshiping the Lord, not only we are worshiping him because he's a king, but as an act of service to him. He deserves our worship. It's an act of service to him. Now, I love this part as a good Latino because he's very, he's full of emotions, you know? He not only says that we ought to shout for joy, but he says that we ought to worship with gladness and joyful songs. Now, listen, it doesn't say that we have to scream or that's not what that means. It doesn't mean that you got to raise your voice, but it does say two things. Our attitude when we worship the Lord should be gladness. And two, we should sing. That is so important. And I got to be honest, that's why it bothers me so much. And this is personal. Listen, I don't turn around to look at you when you worship, and I can't see the people in the east, so I don't know if you're worshiping, but this bothers me. When we are before the presence of this beautiful, perfect, holy God, and we're just observing that drives me crazy. You know why? Because the biblical mandate is that we all participate by singing. Even if you're a terrible singer, man, it don't matter. That's why we got people that know how to sing in the front. So the Lord does not hear our ugly voices. So when someone says, well, I'm not so much of a singer. You know, it's not my, my personality. I'm, I'm more the type that observes. And I'm like... Maybe you should read your Bible more. Because there's no one, listen up church, there is no one that, instead, that stands before the presence of God and is just an observer. You look through all the Bible and there are only two possible reactions before the presence of God. Two possible reactions. Either you run from him and you hide or you worship. You don't get to be an observer. So if you are a believer, you don't get to be an observer. Now, the psalmist knows that there's this tendency in the human heart, and, and even among Christians, sometimes to think that worship is just this emotional rush. It's this emotional things, and I actually think that worshiping is emotional 
But it has to be more than that. Worship cannot be reduced just to the things we feel, how we sing. It has to be more than that. And that's why the psalmist says that when we worship, we worship with our emotions, with gladness, with shouts of joy. We sing, but we sing with understanding. And this comes from verse 3, right at the beginning. Know that the Lord is God. The prerequisite to worship is to know God. We worship because we know who He is. We worship because we have come to understand who He is, what He does, and, and how He does it. Yes, worship is, we worship the Lord with our emotions. But the text says that we also worship the Lord with our minds. Actually, I'm going to make the argument that if you only worship the Lord with your emotions and not with your mind, you are probably worshiping a Lord or God of your own imagination. But if you only worship the Lord with your mind and not with your emotions, I really don't know if you know him because who can stand before such a beautiful, amazing, perfect God and not be moved by it. Now, all that stuff is important. And it gives us a lot of information about why is it that we worship as believers. But that is not the heart of the psalm. Actually, most scholars would agree in saying that the heart, the center, the epicenter of this psalm is not the stuff that happens in verses 1 and 2, nor what happens in verses 4 on. The heart of the text is verse 3, because of the way the psalm is structured. And look at what it says. Know that the Lord is God. He is who made us. We are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pastures. D.A. Carson is one of the scholars that says that that is the epicenter of the text. Actually, D.A. Carson will go, go uh, to argue that part of the reason why Christians ought to worship with everything we are and everything we have is because of this verse. How this God that is perfect and self-sufficient and eternal and omniscient and omnipresent and everything God is has chosen to make us or chose to make us and made us his own. He made us his own. And that to me, from a human perspective, doesn't make any sense. From a human perspective. And the reason why I said that it doesn't make any sense is because of the word sheep. See, if you have been part of our church for a while, this is something that I repeat at least once a year. And I'm always trying to convince you and trying to convince myself that when the Bible calls me a sheep, that is never a compliment. As much as our culture thinks that sheep are cute, they are cute, but they're dumb. See, sheep in the Bible always talks about, when, when the Bible uses uh, the description of sheep for God's people, it's, it's, it's talking about people that are really stubborn, it's beautiful, amazing with dignity and value, but 
stubborn people, slow to learn, and extremely weak. So from a human perspective, when I'm thinking about why is it that God would choose me? Why would God make me his own? It doesn't make any sense. Why is it that the God of the universe would pay attention to people like you and me? Unless you're awesome. Unless you got it all together. Unless you're perfect and never sinned, then that would make sense. But if we are sheep, see, this is why part of worship is to thank him. See, this is why when we worship, we come to him in an attitude of thankfulness. This is why verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. See, we worship for who God is and how he is. We worship because we know him. We worship because he created us. And we worship him because he made us his people, his sheep. Now, if Tina Turner was here, she would say, what's love has to do with that? <laughs> now, for the younger crowd, they don't even know who Tina Turner is, but you know, it's a singer. And what I would answer to Tina is like, Tina, everything, all this song is about love. The reason why he spent, the, the psalmist writes verse 3, is so we understand the nature of God's love. The reason why the, psalms, the psalmist puts verse 3 is so we understand that the only reason, church, the only reason why God created us, the only reason why God chose us to be his is because God is love, and he gives love and does everything out of love. How do I know that? Thanks for asking. Verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Now, this is something that we, under, we ought to understand about this verse. The center, the most important part of the verse is the word love. And everything else surrounding the word love is what describes what the love of God looks like. Actually, in the text, the word that is used there for love is the word hesed. And the word hesed in the Bible can be translated in four different ways. Interesting enough, two of those you see in this verse. So, for example, number one, the, love, the word love, hesed, in the, New in, the, in the Old Testament can be translated as loyal, steadfast, or faithful. It's the same term. That's why the psalmist says that his, that his love endures forever and that God is faithful. Therefore, what the psalmist is saying is that when God chooses someone, when God chooses someone to be his own, he never walks away. His love never walks away. That his love is never conditional nor transactional. That he remains steadfast with his people. You know why that's so important for me? Because if, if I'm still a sheep, and I am, God has all the reasons in the world, in the world to walk away from me. 
but because his love is steadfast. If I'm in Jesus, he never will. That's the first definition. Second definition of love in the, in the Old Testament, the word hesed, can be translated as good or goodness. That's why the text says the Lord is good. Meaning that everything that God does in his love is because he's good. He's, he loves with good love. And if that is true, then anything and everything does, brings, allows, comes from a good, loving God. Even if it doesn't make any sense to me. The third definition of the word love in the text, the word he said in the Old Testament, is where we get the word grace. It says that his love is gracious. That the attitude and the tendency and the inclination of God's heart is to give us what we don't deserve. So let's go back, go back to the illustration of us being sheep. It tells us that the only reason why the Lord loves us, chose us, created us, and made us his own is because he's a God of grace. We don't deserve anything. We can purchase anything. We can do any of that stuff. It's all grace. His love is always graceful. It's always a gift. And the fourth definition of the Lord love there in the text, he said, is that he's merciful. Not only he gives me what I don't deserve, but he doesn't give me what I always deserve as a stubborn sheep. And you know why that's important? Because I know that regardless of what I go through as a sheep, He will never, ever, ever destroy me because I belong to him. And this church is where we get the definition of love. And this is how this definition of love is so radically different to any other definition of love. If God is love, then God defines what love looks like. We don't get to define it. I'm going to talk about that more in my second point. And the psalm shows us that, that the love of God is always others-centered. Did you notice? All the benefits of his love, of his love are not his. It's for his people. The love of the Bible is always God. It's others-centered. It always chooses others. It is always faithful. It always seeks for the goods of others. And it's always grateful and merciful. Love always puts us as recipients, and him as a giver. Wouldn't you think then that that definition of love is very different to what we hear today? It's not based on emotions alone. It's not for me to seek and, and receive what I really want. No, no, no. Love, when you give it to somebody from a biblical perspective, is always others-centered. That answers the first question, what is love? Let's talk about the second question, why love? And I'm going to make the argument that part of the reason why we need to understand that God is love and that everything that he does is in love and because of his love, that should change everything about who we are and how we view life. And I'm, going, I'm, I'm just going to do three applications here really quick. If God, get, if God gets to define what love is and everything that he does is in love and because of his love, that should change everything about how we live and who we are. Three applications. Number one, 
If that's what love is, and who God is, because he is love, we have all the reasons in the world to trust him, even when he allows or inflicts pain. You know, this is super interesting. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, um, there are three, there's a, there's a bunch of different words that, that the Bible uses to describe who God is. But the three primary ones, it describes God as a potter, a shepherd, and a father. Now, what is interesting, I'm sweating so much, and I need to take this thing off because of the love of God. <laughs> you know, God as a shepherd, uh, as a potter, it gives us this idea of a God that is molding, shaping his people. And actually, what it shows is that that process is painful. You need to press and exercise pressure and chip away and fix things and modify things. And he paints this picture of a God that is like that with his people. But it is when we forget that that potter is a loving God. Where we think that God allows or brings or do any of that stuff because he's punishing us. But that is not what the love of God does. It's never about punishment. It's about making us the people that we ought to be. It's turning us into the people that he wants us to be. Even if it hurts. Can you see how the love of God help us understand why God as a partner even would allow or bring pain? He's always trustworthy, even if he hurts. The second image is a shepherd, and a shepherd in the Bible is always someone that is there to guide and protect and defend and provide, and we talked a little bit about that last week. But it is because God is love that guarantees that regardless of what we go through, regardless of what we experience, God as a shepherd, because he's loving, would always guide, would always protect, would always defend, and would always provide. His love guarantees everything that a shepherd would do. And the last one is a father. Now, for this one, I got to use an illustration because I think it'll be really, I think it's easier to understand and grasp why is it that God is called a loving father. So, um, I, th I think I shared this with you before, but I, uh, I, I don't like to do cardio. I don't like to run. I don't like to do bike. I played soccer my entire life, but I did it because I love soccer, not because I enjoy the running. <laughs> so I have high respect and admiration for those of you that like to run for hours and hours and hours, because I think there's something wrong with you. But, <laughs> but for me, in order for me to do cardio, I have to be listening to something or watching something. So whenever I go to the gym, if I'm doing cardio, I put a movie or I'm listening to something. And, and it's interesting because in the last, this is how the Lord speaks to me, by the way, besides the Bible. Whenever I'm doing cardio, I pick a movie, whatever movie is there, and I watch it. And it's interesting that in the last two months, I watched two movies because I watched like 20 minutes at a time, right? Um, and I watch a movie called uh, Southpaw, which is the story about a boxer that his wife gets killed, and then his daughter is taken away. And by the way, whenever I see stories about fathers and daughters, I automatically feel that I'm part of the movie because I only have daughters. 
So I'm watching this boxer, right? And he loses everything and he's willing to sacrifice anything. And he goes all the way and he almost gets killed because his daughter was, had been taken away and he needs to do something to bring her back. Right? So he fights these crazy fights and he endures whatever he needs to endure. Why? Because he needs to rescue his daughter. Man, I'm watching this movie and I feel like the boxer. I'm like, I would do the same thing, you know, because as a father, that's what the love of a father would do. But the following month, by the way, none of these movies are good. It's just distracting for me. The following movie I watch after that is Taken. You guys familiar with that movie? Shame on you. But <laughs> it's about this man that his daughter got kidnapped into human trafficking. And he's got a, what is that he says? A very special set of skills. A skills that makes him a nightmare. And I'm, I'm listening to this. I'm like, I'm that father, man. I got the skills. Which is not true, man. I will get killed super fast. But, you know, I feel that I'm part of the movie. And part of the reason why I feel connected to the man is because he's willing to do anything for his daughter. You know, I'm doing my cardio thing. And I'm thinking about this sermon. And I realize that what makes the, the love of God so amazing is that it's much greater, much, 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 much greater than the love of those fathers and the love I have for my daughters. Because he is the God of love. If us as human beings, especially for those that are parents, would do crazy things for our kids, crazy things for our kids, how much more our God that is the ultimate father? See, what guarantees that we have a dad that would do crazy things for us just to bring us back, just to rescue us, just to love us, is because by nature, he is love. He's always faithful. He's always good. He's always graceful. He's always merciful. God, the love of God, is the primary reason why not only we could always trust him, not only we could trust that he's our shepherd, and not only we could trust that he's our father. That's the first application. Second application has to do that with this, that if God is love, then really, he's the only person that gets to define what love is. You don't get to define it. I don't get to define it. That's part of the cultural problem. Francis Schaeffer talked about this years ago, and he says that the problem with the, with the modern man, that's how he said it, is that everyone has a different opinion about what love is. And if everyone has a different opinion about what love is, then what is love? If your definition is different than mine, then what is love? And this is where us as believers, we have to surrender our definition of love to whatever God says is love. Part of the problem with our culture is that everyone is constantly redefining what love is. That's why there's a little phrase going around, love is love. You know what that means? Nobody knows what that means. Because everyone has a different definition. Let me give you an example here. 
in our culture, in our time. If you love, you must agree. If you agree with me, you love me. If you don't agree with me, you don't love me. So if I want to live whatever lifestyle I want to live, if I want to do whatever I want, if I think that it's okay to smack my wife, if I think that it's okay to abuse my kids, if I think that it's okay to do any crazy things, if I think that that's loving, you have to agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me. Tell me if that makes any sense. Especially because love, from God's perspective, is always seeking for the good of the other person. Can you see how as Christians, we don't get to define what love is. God defines what love is. And application number three. If God is love, and everything he does is in love, and because of his love, don't you think that it's foolish for us to try to find that love in anybody else but God. See, I think that this is the problem even within the church. When it comes to relationships, there is this temptation and there's this temptation to want to find in others what only God can give you. And we are so thirsty for that love that that is the recipe for disaster and dissolution within the church. So if you marry, you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or a really close friend or a meaningful relationship, the tendency is to want that person to give you the love that only God could give. Only his love is perfect. Only his love is faithful. Only his love is good. Only his love is great, is full of grace and full of mercy. Only his love. All of the rest of our loves are much lesser than that. So think about a boy and a girl. They're, they're in love and they're trying to find someone that is going to be faithful forever and good to me all the time and full of grace and mercy and all of these things. And they try to get it out of, find it in this person. And because that person is a created being. As much as that person wants, that person cannot give the other person what the person needs. Therefore, the only solution, at least for us as Christians, is to stop looking in people what only God can give. Listen up. And that when we get that love we so much need in God, then now we could love people the way we're supposed to. You could only give to others what you have. We don't get to love others if we don't have it. And as Christians, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we really got to fight against, uh, fight against the temptation of wanting to look for that godly love in all the wrong places. It is, only, it is only there. It's only when we understand that. It's only when we have found in God the love that we so much want that we can actually try to be as much as we can loving and faithful and good 
and full of grace and full of mercy to the best of our abilities. Only when your heart is already full with the love of God. That answers the second question, why love? And then it gives me one last minute to talk about the third question, why Advent? See, if I already told you that the only way we could love other people is when our heart is full of his love. And if I already told you that the only way we stop wanting for other people to love us in a way that they can't, how do we find that love that we so much want? And this is why Advent is so important. You remember how I told you that the word love has said, one of the translations is the word mercy? How about if I tell you that there was another song sang in the New Testament? A song that was sang by Prophet Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Have you, ever, have you ever read how is it that he describes Jesus in that song? He's singing because his son is about to prepare the way for the Lord of Lords, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is how he describes Jesus as God men, as God love. Verse chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 78. He is the tender mercy of our God. You know what that word is? Love. He is the love of our God. You know why that's so important? Because love is not a concept. Love is a person. And our hearts find full satisfaction in that love. Not only when we think about God the Father, but when we embrace God the Son. The love of God for so much God loved the world that he gave us his love in his son. It is only when as Christians we remember and we celebrate that our Jesus, baby Jesus, came to be the personification of faithfulness, personification of goodness, personification of grace, personification of mercy that our hearts find that that longing fully fulfilled and now we could go and love others amen, amen. merry christmas let's pray Lord, it is easy to get entangled in the wrong definition of love. It is so easy to look for your love in all the wrong places and in all the wrong people. Lord, it is so easy to be unfair to others, wanting them to give us what only you can give. And it's so easy to try to give others things that we don't have. Lord, and this is part of the reason why we celebrate Christmas. This is part of the reason why we celebrate Advent. Because we get to sing, remember, and celebrate that love already came. That love became a person. A person that will be faithful and good and full of grace and full of mercy. And that person will be Jesus Christ. 
And I pray, Lord, that we may be able to see and understand and believe and embrace that what we have been looking for has always been Jesus and would always be Jesus, even if we are Christians already. And I pray, Lord, that you help us see and understand that not only Jesus came, the personification of love, love in human form, but that love is what took him to the cross. So he could be faithful to his people. To show us that he needed to die for our own good. To take our place in the cross to show us and give us and extend grace. And to receive what we received. What, what we needed to receive. And there we get to see his mercy. Lord, by the power of the Spirit, I pray that you help us embrace not just the concept of love, but the person of love. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...